happened from there. Uh, got connected to the NAB. Nick and I connected, and we're dear friends. We, we talk um, at least monthly, probably text weekly. We pray for you guys. We pray for each other. We preach at each other's churches. We even did a podcast together. He's saying it's my fault that we're not doing it still. I don't think so. I blame it completely on him. So ask him when we're going to do podcasting again, if you would. Um, Some of you are probably wondering where my beard is at. I put it in an Amazon box and gave it to my wife. Um, True story. She she, uh, really didn't like the beard, and it was down to here. And um, I told her that as soon as COVID restrictions ended in Oregon, I'd shave my beard. I didn't think that would happen. So... So we're in Oregon, and June 30th hits, COVID restrictions, and I shaved my beard, and I put it in a box and on our doorstep two days later, and she said it was the experience of uh, toenail clippings and the nails screeching on the cardboard, at, or on a chalkboard at the same time. That's kind of how she described opening that box. <laughs> so honey, I'm just keeping a promise. I'm sure that's what Jesus would do. So she kicked me out, and I'm here this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Well, greetings from Hope Fellowship again. Like we, you guys are our sister church. I hope you feel that way about us. And it's it's really fitting that I'm preaching out of Philippians this morning. Philippians is a book where Paul's writing to a church that really is a, a partnering church. In fact, the the, the series title because I'm going through Philippians back at Hope, and the series title is Gospel Partnership, or should I say, Partnership? Hang on a second. Participation Fellowship. I knew those words would come. Where this church in Philippi participated with him in ministry while he is in prison in Rome. In fact, they were, they were one of the few churches to partner with him both financially and sending people and loving him and encouraging him. And Paul just has this great affection for the church of Philippi, as, as I do for you, as Nick does for our church, as many of our NAB pastors do for each other's churches, because we're all part of one body. And so where we are in the context here where our passage is today, Paul is writing to the church whom he loved. This is a church that he's partnered with, a church that he's participated with in ministry, a, a church who also participates in the sufferings of Christ, which Paul, Paul is experiencing as well. And he has concerns about their unity. Paul is writing them because he has concerns about their unity. And I would label it even a concern about their gospel culture. What is their culture at this church? There was grumbling and disagreement within the body. There, there's maybe some rivalry between ministerial leaders, maybe even maybe of the church or maybe just outside the church. Paul deals with this often, doesn't he? He says, yeah. those of you who say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Did Paul or Apollos die for you? No. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. But there's the possibility of ministerial pride, even within the body, or, or maybe just as simply the church at large, and Paul is encouraging them to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And then he, he shows us, I think, what that looks like in Philippians chapter 2. So before we begin, I'm going to ask you some questions. The title of the passage is called, or sorry, the the sermon is called Christ-Centered Community. But the community is made of individuals, isn't it? What affects the culture of the church here at Timberline? It's the people here, right? It's how you carry yourself. It's how you treat each other. It's how you present yourself even to each other. So what happens when you walk into the room here? What happens when you walk into the church here or any room? Do you find yourself wanting to be recognized when you walk into the room? Do you find yourself having a need to be seen is important. 
how, how important is your own dignity and honor to you? Do you find yourself upset if you're not noticed in the way you believe you ought to be? Do, do you have a sense that you need to be noticed in order to feel valued? As if, if, if you don't, is there something missing? Or, or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you don't want to be recognized or you don't want to be noticed for reasons of fear. Well, if they see me, they're going to judge me. You've been noticed before and you've messed it up. Or maybe you failed to meet or maintain a certain expectations put on you. You've been hurt or embarrassed before. And your ego is no longer puffed up, but it's, it's deflated. You see, this passage has many applications for many contexts. And, and Paul's writing to the church, wanting the church to have unity, to have a gospel culture in it. So what does that look like? Because the truth be told, we all come in with hurt egos, don't we? Can you be honest with yourself enough to say that there's a bit of pride within you? And, and me, too. I mean, please, don't, don't think I'm preaching at you. So our main passage is Philippians 2, 1 through 11, but I, w- I want to remind you of the surrounding paragraphs. In your ta- you guys do table groups, right? And you gather. Do you guys talk about the sermon? Is that what you do? Okay. Um, in, in your table groups, read the passage before and read the passage after. Because so often this passage is taken and it's, they, it's focused primarily on the character and the nature of God pouring himself, Jesus, right? The son of God pouring himself out. And that's absolutely wonderful and appropriate. But Paul was using that as an example to how we are to relate to each other inside community. All right. So I know you guys do this. I do this at our church. Would you please stand with me? Let's read the passage that we're going to look at today. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your word. May we be a people who are changed by your word. Lord, would would you guard my lips from saying anything that is untrue of you? Lord, and would you guard the ears of those who are here? Lord, if I say anything that is not an accurate representation of who you are, may it pass by. But Lord, if by your spirit, your word is being preached, would you do surgery on our souls? Would you seek to make us, mold us, shape us into the image of your son? 
For that, that is glorious, oh God. And that is worship unto you. We pray this in the name and under the power of Jesus, the Son of God, who is our King. Amen. You may be seated. So my church knows this. I need like a tissue fairy every now and then. I think I'll be okay. You, you're dear. Thank you. Yeah. It's, there's a leak. So we're going to view the passage under the following headings. Paul's plea for gospel unity. This is verse 1 through 4. That we are to have the mind of Christ. This is verse 5. That he is the ever-flowing fountain poured out for us. This is verse 6 through 8. And that he is the exalted son of man. Son of God. Verses 9 through 11. So Paul's beginning, and he's pleading with these people. I mean, that's, that's what I'm doing, right? I'm pleading with you. That's what Nick does every week, right? He pleads with you, right? It's, it's this exhortation, this plea. Hey, if this is who Jesus is, then this is what we ought to look like. This is what it looks like. This is what it means for us to follow, to pick up our cross, and to follow him. And Paul uses um, imperatives and indicatives, And I have them switched in my notes, which is really confusing. But an indicative is truths. If these are truths, then this is the imperative. This is what we're to do because of these truths. So what are the indicatives? We'll look at verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, who is he writing to? The church, right? The church who would share these things. Do we not? Why are you here? Why are you here, church? Because you couldn't find something else to do with two hours of your morning? You're here for a reason, right? You're here because you've been drawn by the Spirit of God to come and worship with the people of God, to focus your heart and mind on the Son of God. And if that didn't bring you joy, if that didn't draw you to a purpose, to to being fulfilled, then you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. I'd be home, sleeping or watching Olympics or watching a football game, right? So, So here he's saying, hey, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Why are you together? What unifies you as a body? Look around, folks. You're here with people who love the same God you love. You might look different. You might act different. You might feel different. You might have different interests. There might be other things about you. You might dress different than each other, but you have the most important same thing in common. Amen? Man, I have a booming voice in this room. That's awesome. Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) Think about it. Think about it. You have more reason to be connected to the people in this room than the people in your workplace or your social club or your knitting club or your softball team or your bowling alley or wherever you go. You have an indestructible bond between you in here. Do you, do, you, do you grasp the depth of that? And Paul is just, he's pleading. He's pleading with his church. Remember, look, there's not unity in the church for some reason. Remember what binds you together. If you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort from his love for you, if you have any participation in the Spirit. Friends, the same Spirit that dwells in you dwells in me and dwells in all who believe in Him. If you have any affection and sympathy, do you love, do you love God? And then Paul's saying, like, complete my joy. Okay, a whole other topic, maybe this is another time. 
I do everything for the sake of joy. So like, like I'm like right there with Paul. Paul's saying, complete my joy as a pastor. Complete my joy. Like this, this is what I take joy in. You're good. So here, here is the indicative. The indicative is you are unified in Christ. And he's calling the, the body to be unified. But here's the imperative. Then be of the same mind. Be of the same love. Be in full accord. Actually, the word there is one soul. Be one soul with each other. One mind. That's the positive. Well, what's the negative? The negative is do nothing from selfish ambition. Church, we, we, we ought to. Like we, we are people. We are people who walk, who live, who breathe, who eat. We are to be the most transparent people. Amen? Why are we to be transparent people? Well, first of all, we can be because Jesus has taken our... Taken? Taken? Grammatarians? Um, Jesus has nailed our sin to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that we would be what? The righteousness of God. We walk in freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Like, we're to be people who are transparent. And he's saying this, do nothing from selfish ambition. Your aim, when you walk into the church, or this room, or that room, or your work, or wherever, as believers, our aim is not to glorify ourselves. Selfish ambition, the word implies, really, it's like this one-upmanship. I'm coming to present myself better than someone else. Like if we understand the gospel, we know what? We all like sheep have gone astray. What is the difference between you and your unsaved neighbor? God's grace? Do you think you're smarter than them? No. Do you think you're more spiritually adept than them? No. What's the difference? God had mercy. God has opened your eyes. The gospel, just, just, it, it, how do I say that? It implies exactly what scripture says, that we are all cursed and gone astray, right? So what is Paul saying here? He's saying our ambition Friends, we're to do nothing. Our motives aren't to be selfish. It's not to be putting ourselves above others. It's not conceit. It's not vainglory. And then he says this. Here's the positive again. In humility, consider others more important than you. Look to their interests. What does that look like? What does looking to their interests mean? Hey, if your brother has a need and you can meet that need, do you meet it? If your brother or sister has a problem, do you take it into your mind and your heart to think about, to pray about how to, how to minister to them? Or is, oh, that's their problem. Better yet, better yet, love them. Love them. This is Corinthians 13, right? How do we love someone? I'll just offer this example and we'll move on. Love seeks its joy in the joy of the beloved. Love seeks its joy in the joy of the beloved. In fact, you parents, here's a quick example. What happens Christmas morning? Who gets more joy? You? You? Who gave the gifts? Sorry, let me put that the other way. Your children who opened the gifts, are you who gave them? What is your joy in? Your joy is in their joy in opening these gifts, right? 
How do we serve one another in humility? We, how do we look into their interests above our own? Friends, we love them and we seek our joy in their joy. So, so here's the question. Why is it so hard? Like, is it just me? Am I the only selfish person in here? Why is it so hard to consider others more important than myself? To think of them above myself. And I, let me just ask a few questions. Maybe, maybe this will poke somewhere where it might make you uncomfortable. Are you slighted when others belittle you? Why? Could it be that you want to be perceived as such? Like, that gets me. I don't like being belittled. Why are you hurt or mad or angry when you don't feel as respected as you ought to feel? Can I just say that that's, that's our pride talking? That's our ego talking, isn't it? Timothy Keller wrote a book. He's wrote a lot of books. But he wrote a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And if there's, it's, I mean, it's like this big. This is an easy read. And I would implore every believer to read it. He unpacks 1 Corinthians 3. And there's this word called physio. And it's translated pride. But the word means to be overinflated, swollen, distended beyond its proper size. And it's related to the word for bellows. And Timothy wrote this. It brings to mind rather a painful image of an organ in the human body, an organ that is distended because so much air has been pumped into it. So much air that it is overinflated and ready to burst. It's swollen, inflamed, and extended past its proper size. And that, says Paul, is the condition of the natural human ego. I mean, just, just imagine this with me. Imagine the human ego to be like a balloon. That's the picture I get, right? It's made with a certain elasticity to hold a certain weight, to grow to a certain extent. And like my kids ask me all the time, blow this up, daddy, blow this up. And then they let it go. I'm like, oh, I just blew it up, right? But you're, you're supposed to put air in it, right? To a certain extent. When we puff it up with air, past, it limit, past its limit, it easily pops, right? It hits a corner and it pops. Or we tie it and it slowly deflates. And the balloon doesn't go, where, go anywhere anymore. It just kind of sits pathetically on the floor and doesn't get played with, right? When the balloon is filled to the proper limit with the proper substance, it's doing what the balloon was made to do. And here's the thing. This, this is where it gets hard for us because balloons come in all shapes, talents, and sizes, right? Wait, all shapes and sizes. But it does. People come in all shapes and sizes. People come with all sorts of talents that we do or don't have. Giftings that might appear to be greater than ours. Am I starting to hit anyone's nerve yet? So what happens? What's the root? What's happening underneath all this? I mean, vain conceit is really envy, isn't it? Pride, is, is, pride isn't having something that's good and taking joy in it. Pride is taking joy in having more than others. Does that make sense? You see, if we're overinflated or underinflated, we fail to be who God has made us to be. And such it is with the human ego. When our pride inflates our ego, we aren't bendable, we aren't pliable, but instead we easily pop. And yet, and yet, okay, when we're deflated, 
When we're deflated, who here hasn't felt deflated? When you're insecure, deflated. When you want to hide in a corner because you don't want to be seen, deflated. That's what it is. That's also our pride. It means in our pride, we didn't live up to the greatness we aspired to. Someone else has more than we, we do, and we want that, and we think we ought to have that. That should have been our shape. That should have been our size. That should have been my talent. That should have been what I received. And I didn't. It looks for pity. It's still self-focused. Self-pity is just another word for pride. So church, let us not be filled with air, but filled with Jesus. Amen? I wish I had a joke. Some of you look really sad right now. (laughs) There's good news. Let me just say that. There's good news, and we're going to get there, okay? Because Paul doesn't leave us there, does he? He doesn't leave us there. He says, let each of you look not... I said that. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't be this or this. Have this mind. Have the mind of Christ, to which you should say, how is that possible? And our answer is, because Jesus, right? This is the gospel. God sent his son that we shouldn't live in in our sins, live in death and in rebellion against God. But he has redeemed us, restored us, made us righteous. He has cleansed us. He's given us a new nature. He's filled us with his spirit. Amen? You guys know I'm Baptocostal? Can I explain that? Okay, if I say something that moves your soul, can I get an amen? amen? Amen. How about a hallelujah? Okay, now I'm feeling at home. All right? The Lord has put His Spirit in you. Amen. Amen. Like, we aren't destined to wallow around in our self-pity. We aren't destined to be inflated in our sense of pride and be popped. God made you and I in His image, and He is restoring His image in us where we get to walk in the freedom and the love of all of who He is with His mind. That's baffling, and it's so good. So what does that look like? What does that look like? You have been filled in him, amen? Okay. He's given his spirit to you as a guarantee, amen? Okay. We abide in him as his people, amen? Okay. Jesus, listen. What does that look like? Jesus, who had every right to exalt himself as God himself, become man. Literally God's gift to men. Not the way a 13-year-old boy would say it, right? <laughs> Literally, he is God's gift to mankind. And what did he do? Look at verse 6 through 8. And I, I, I titled this section, The Ever-Flowing Fountain Poured Out. It I don't know, it was early. Let me read verses 6 through 8. By the way, let me context real quick. Scholars would say this is, this is like a song. This is a hymn. One that they probably needed projection for. Okay, But it was memorable in such a way that they could learn it. So the way this is written is we would look at this as a song, something they would chant, something they would say. Paul quotes it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on cross. Now, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of first century Philippi. These are largely Jews. When they're hearing this, they're hearing Isaiah 42 through 53. 
in the background. That's what they're hearing. They're hearing the suffering servant psalms. Let me just read a couple passages from that, which I would if I had it here. Apparently, I don't. There it is. Isaiah 45, verses 23. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah 52, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offerings and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 12, therefore I will divide with him a portion of the many, and he shall divide the spoil among the strong, because he poured his soul out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So they they hear this hymn. They're not doubting the divinity or the humanity of Christ. And they're hearing this hymn in context of Isaiah 42 through 53. And the reason why I bring this up is you who are Greek scholars, you who have been in the church for a long time, you probably heard the word kenosis, right? Kenosis is this idea that's where we get the word emptied. That that Christ emptied himself, right? He poured himself out. And we've made a whole theology about well, what does it mean? He poured God himself out into like a human cup or like, you know, there, all these different images come up. And Gordon Fee made this statement. He said, I don't think most of those scholars can know what they're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a dad. Um, here, here, was, here was his emphasis, and I, I stand here with him, I think. I, I think I am. I'm preaching it. Um, they knew Jesus was fully God, fully man. This was a song. They're, they're seeing it in context of Isaiah. What was being poured out? Well, we see in other passages of Scripture that Jesus came as the Son of God, right? From the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have all beheld His glory, right? John 1. And He he pours out upon us grace upon grace. Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew who it was you were talking to, you would ask of me and I would give you water. Water that's what? It's, it's ever flowing. You'd never have to come back to this. I mean, he was using a metaphor. But a, a thirst, a spiritual thirst, your spiritual thirst would always be quenched. Paul talks about Jesus as being him who fills all in all. So what was Jesus doing as he, as he came to earth? What, what is this saying? And, and what Gordon Fee gathered, what I, I, I think this is the point, is Jesus came already fully possessing deity. He was fully God, fully man. And in pouring himself out and becoming man and becoming a servant, he was really showing the person, the nature, the character of God. This is the character of God. That he would pour himself out for you. Right? And if we think about this in context of just the whole gospel narrative, God created man in his image, and man trying to usurp, trying to grasp what it's like to be God, took the apple and failed. 
And here we have God who then becomes man, not just man, but a servant. He lowers him. He washed feet. That's not just stinky. That, that says of a certain status. That speaks of a status in Jewish culture that is like the lowest of the lowest servant. And here, the Son of God comes and completely secure in who he was, not needing to grasp anything to fill himself up. Not needing to puff up his ego, his identity. Not lacking, not deflated either. He didn't shrink back. But he came and he did what? And he poured his soul out to death. He was obedient. Listen, he was obedient to the Father. I mean, isn't it hard for you and I to follow rules? Amen. <laughs> right? This is Romans 7. I didn't have a desire to do this thing until the law said, don't do this thing. And then I wanted to do this thing. You with children, you don't need to say, as soon as you say, don't touch that, what happens? You go touch it, right? And here Jesus is perfectly obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you know how shameful that was? Guys, Ladies, gentlemen, do you know how shameful it is to hang there naked? Naked. To be despised, to be spit upon, to be mocked. How could he do that? How? Listen, because he came down to earth not to grasp, not to receive vain glory, not to be filled up. He was already full in God, his Father. Hey, believer, you and I can live and walk in such a way that we're not grasping for the world to fill us up. You can walk into this room with these people and not grasp for them to fill up your identity, fill up, puff up your ego. But you can be secure in all of who you are and all of who God has made you to be in Christ. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. So the question is, is what does that look like and how do we get there, right? Does that feel, okay, listen, does that feel impossible for any of you? A little, right? I mean, just be honest. Does that feel impossible? Outside of Jesus, the Son of God, my identity would be fully based on my performance of who what I did, and how other people thought of me. Right? And I would be grasping. And I would be aiming to perform. And I would be aiming for accolades. I would be performing for this. What did Jesus do? He wasn't performing for mankind. He was serving mankind. Right? So how? How much time do I have? <laughs> I have kids, so I know what happens back there. And I've done children's ministry. So I, I want to be respectful of that. Um, just a couple more things. Because I, I think the how is really important in this. Right? Because I, I, can't, I can't tell you, hey, you should be fully, you, you should have a full identity of, of perfect, no, hang on, we're made perfect. What am I trying to say here? You should be able to walk in freedom in who you are in Christ and rejoice in the talents God has given you and rejoice in the talents of other people who might outshine you. How do we do that? 
Jeff Vanderstilt, he's semi-local, right? Or used to be. He's in Seattle. He wrote a book called Gospel Fluency. It has just changed the way I apply the gospel to myself, to my children, parents. If you have children and you're looking for a way to just really infect your children with the gospel in the discipline process, instead of just, hey, don't do that, Jesus says no, which is my default, right? Uh, I would suggest this book, but here's the thing. It actually works for us, too. We're just bigger kids. He wrote this. He says, when I'm seeking to discern unbelief in the gospel, because really that's our problem. That's mine and your problem. Every time we feel insecure or we feel prideful or we're, we're grasping and trying to pull something in to make ourselves feel better, we're not believing in the gospel. He says, I ask these questions. What am I doing or experiencing right now? In light of what I'm doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself? What do I believe that God is doing or has done? And lastly, what do I believe God is like? In other words, I trace the fruit back to the root. Let me just give you a quick example. If I feel insecure, which I do, it happens. That's the fruit. Like, I feel insecure. I feel like I'm not very, I'm not very important. I'm not very good. I've been playing basketball in the mornings. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the athlete I used to be, okay? So, and I, that's a trite example. I should give you a better one. Uh, sometimes I feel insecure just in a social setting because I don't feel accepted. I feel weird or different. I'm not funny. Or I say something and people don't take it the right way. Right? And I experience shame. That's the fruit. What am I experiencing right now? Shame. Insecure. Guilt. In light of what I'm doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself? I'm... <laughs> um, I'm weird, I'm different, I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable. What, have I, what do I believe God is doing or has done? He's just left me to myself. I'm on my own. He's rejected me. He thinks I'm weird. He thinks I'm not worthy. What do I believe God is like in that moment? Not loving, not merciful, not kind, not sympathetic, expecting me to perform to a certain level that I can't in and of my own self attain to? I'm tracing the fruit of my disbelief to the root belief that God doesn't love or accept me. Do you see that? Okay, so how do I get from the root to the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the true fruit? That's an amen. I'm going to take it that way. Well, here are, these, here are these beliefs, and what am I doing? I'm confessing that this is what I'm believing right now. I'm believing these false things about who God is. And that's what's led me to feel and think and do these things. Well, what is true about God is that I have been accepted in Him through Jesus. All of my sin, past, present, and future, is nailed to the cross. I am redeemed. I am restored. I am full in Him. Amen? I don't need to be anything else than he's already made me to be. What is he doing and what has he done? God has redeemed me and restored me and he pursues me with his love and he pursues me with his kindness and he's changing me and shaping me and molding me into the image of his son. That's what's happening. What is true about me? I am redeemed. I am his. I belong. I have value. I am he has made me good. What is the fruit that, that, that produces in me? Love, 
Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, security. I feel secure in Him. My identity is not moved by what other people would think of me or what they would say of me or even my stupid little blunders because I make them. Right? That's just part of the human experience. You make blunders. Oh, I said something and they didn't perceive it the right way. Okay. Lord, if there's a way to correct that, awesome. I'd love that. If there's not, okay, that's fine. I'm secure in you. I belong to you. Because it's only from a position where we're filled in him that we're able to do. Listen, this is what he's calling us to do. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you who belong to him now look like him. Just as he pours himself out for us, we now pour ourselves out for others. Now I'm getting back to the gospel community thing. Do you see it? What is Paul saying? He's saying that you, as individuals who are, who are bought by the blood of Jesus, who are filled in him, who, who the Spirit of God rests upon, you're to pour yourself out for each other just as Christ has poured himself out for you. Okay. He preaches like 50 minutes, doesn't he? I'm only at 40. Okay. Just checking. So verse 9 through 11, and, I, and I'm not going to dig deep into this. There's a, there's a ton there. But you're a gospel-centered community. You're a Christ-centered community. So it always comes back to who is Jesus, right? It always comes back to who is Jesus and how is he magnified and glorified, both in our community and in the cosmos. Because, friends, let me tell you that this church is not about who stands in the pulpit. It's not about Nick or Chris or Rich or whoever. If the church is about one man, it's about the one man, Jesus. So what happens here? Paul goes and he, he gives us this hymn and then he proceeds to talk about the exaltation of the Son of God because, listen... Gospel community does center around the glory of a person, but it is the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. So what has God done? Therefore, because Jesus came and as God, submitted himself to the will of the Father, took on flesh, came in the form of a man, then went into the form of a servant and poured himself out to save all of humanity, what has God done? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, should I do it? I'm going to. Uh, as I was studying that, I'm like, well, yeah, it's Jesus, right? Well, hang on, he already had that name. How does he even bestow a name that he already has a name? There's some work there to be done, right? Commentators say, and I will agree with them, because they're smarter than me, that that name is none other than Yahweh. That God the Father has bestowed upon his son his personal covenantal name of Yahweh. It's the Father giving the Son his name. The Father approving of all that the Son has done. And this isn't out of the boundaries of of Scripture. In fact, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So we know that Jesus identifies himself with names of the Father, of the Godhead. But this glory that God the Father is bestowing upon the Son is one that exalts him to the name above every name. So that at the name of, now here it is, at the name of Jesus, it's there but we know what Jesus we're talking about, Jesus Christ, at his name. Every niche bow, Isaiah 52, every tongue confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
He's the one that we glorify. And this glorifies the Father. The proper response to this is one thing. It's worship, isn't it? My aim here this morning wasn't to come and give you this impossible task of holding yourself to a morality that you can't do. My aim here this morning was to call you to behold, to look upon, to gaze upon Jesus, the Son of God, to abide in him, to be filled in him, and thereby be able to walk as he walked. So church, here's, here's my question to you, and this is both individually and and as a group, what are the areas in your life, in your heart, in your mind, where pride exists and you need to humble yourself? You need to repent. And how do you do that? And as a church, Jesus said they will know you are Christians by what? By your love. How do you love the people in this room? Can you look around and love the people in this room? And it's only by Jesus that you can do that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, worship you, exalt you, rejoice in you. We know, Lord, that we, we are purchased by you. Lord, that our identity is formed in you as a redeemed human being, as a redeemed son or daughter of God. And that you, O Lord, who fills all in all, have given us your spirit. How will God not also with Jesus himself give us all things? Lord, we are not lacking. We have no need to grasp. But instead, Lord, we can rest and trust you. Rest in who we are in Christ and trust, Lord, that you have nothing but our good in mind. So, Lord, take this word, apply it to our heart, change us, mold us, shape us into the image of your Son. Shape this church, shape this community, Lord, into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.